Mark chapter 1. You may already know this, but Greenland is the largest island in the world. It's also the most poorly named island probably in the world, because if you know, Greenland is mostly ice and snow. I imagine the, the very earliest vacation or uh, tourism brochures for Greenland probably had it nice big green letters with you know, pictures of white sand beaches and whatever, but it was, and it always has been, an ice land, really, more than a green land. Well, in the 16 and 1700s, the population of Greenland was mostly uh, indigenous Inuit people who lived in fairly primitive conditions. Well, in 1721, a Norwegian missionary named Hans Egede arrived in Greenland. And reaching this indigenous population was what was near and dear to his heart. He came bringing the gospel of Christ, but the challenge ahead was far greater than he ever imagined. He had hoped that he could quickly pick up the language and begin to share the gospel with the people, but he found learning the language was much more difficult than he had imagined. For the next decade, he spent trying to get a grasp on speaking the language of the people. Furthermore, the conditions there were extremely harsh. In the summertime, it was all that he could do to swat away the gnats that would swarm around him. In the winter, it was freezing cold. First, the people themselves were very close to his message. No matter what he tried, it just didn't seem to break through their, their tough exterior. And this went on for year after year. And we can imagine in such harsh conditions with such rejection that many people would probably give up and go home. After all, what, what's the point of continuing? But for 12 years, Hans Egede remained in Greenland and continued to chip away slowly. Finally, a breakthrough did come in 1733. Another uh, visitor from Denmark inadvertently brought smallpox to Greenland. And the, the local population had no uh, immunity. And so the disease spread rapidly and with much devastating effect. Well, Hans Egede went into action. The compassion and love he had tried to communicate through broken words, he now showed through action. He was on continual call. And when he was not out in the villages nursing the sick, he was besieged at his home. Hearing of his generosity, local people came from miles around for treatment. The sickest among them were often brought into his own home where he and his wife gave them beds and cared for them. When the crisis lifted, people of Greenland were far more open to Hans Egede and his message. They had seen how much he had cared. They had seen his compassion and his service he had done for them. Now, the story of Hans Egede is reminiscent of the Lord Jesus, who served restlessly, ceaselessly in serving others. In fact, as I read this story, it reminded me of the scene from our text this morning in Mark chapter 1, where it says, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and many who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered outside his door. Then he healed many who were sick and with various diseases. Again, it sounds very similar to what he experienced in Greenland with the sick showing up at his door. But we see in Christ the heart of a servant who selflessly gave himself for others. But serving can be hard work. And sometimes we would feel like tossing in the towel and saying, you know, 
Just let them deal with their own problems. In fact, certainly that was the case, and you can imagine that somebody like a missionary in Greenland could have felt that way. What's the point of going on? It's too difficult. But that wasn't the attitude of Christ, and that wasn't the attitude of Hans Egede. And it shouldn't be ours either. This morning, I'd like to exhort us with these words. We should not grow weary in serving others. We should not grow weary in serving others. I know we sometimes do. And I'm not suggesting this morning that we should expend ourselves in such a way that we have nothing left to give to anyone else. But I am saying that to follow Christ means being a servant is the work of our lives. We don't graduate from being a servant. We graduate to being a servant. There are a few places where Jesus' sacrificial service is more plainly on display than here in Mark chapter 1. Now, in the first chapter of Mark, the gospel gives us a snapshot of Jesus' ministry activity. And it records a single day here. If you recall from last time, verse 21 all the way down through verse 39 is one long day in the life of Jesus, a snapshot of what his time was like. And I think, I think that Mark puts it early in the gospel here to kind of give us a paradigm of what Jesus' ministry was like. In other words, this was just an ordinary day for Jesus. He had dozens just like it. In fact, any given day, if you were to locate Jesus during his ministry in Galilee, it probably looked something like this. It's just average, ordinary Jesus, if you will. Well, the day starts back in verse 21 at the synagogue. On the Sabbath day, Jesus taught in the synagogue and wowed his audience by preaching with authority. There, and even more startling than that, was the interruption of a demon-possessed man with this never-before-seen power, Christ commands the demon to come out of the man, and it obeyed. I can tell you, in Capernaum that day, the entire community was practically in shock. The synagogue service over, which, kind of like modern church services, met in the morning and then released about noon or so. And then everybody would go back to their homes and usually have a large meal, just like you might have a large meal this afternoon. And this was the practice. So everybody dispersed from the synagogue meeting. They all go home or to their favorite restaurants for lunch. And I can guarantee you what every discussion was over that lunch meal. Can you believe what happened today? Were you there? Did you see that? This was on everybody's mind and in everybody's heart. Everybody in the town is buzzing about what just happened. Well, Jesus returns to Peter's house for lunch. And that's where our text picks up this morning in verse 29. Now, one could easily imagine that after a long and busy morning Jesus had had, he has every right to go home, sit down in the easy chair, kick up the the footstool, and take a nice long nap. But as elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus doesn't grow weary in in serving others. And to that point, I'd like to draw out several lessons from Jesus' activity in this chapter, lessons that we can apply today. Let's look at the text, first in verse 29. Mark 1.29 says, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. And And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. 
Now, this passage may not seem like it has much application to us today, but I'd like us to see this lesson. We must serve others with compassion. Serve others with compassion. I believe that when we study this day, but really anywhere in the life of, and ministry of Jesus, Jesus served others not because it was his job or because he had to. He served out of love and compassion for people. So again, I take us back to the scene. After this very eventful morning, Jesus and his friends, his disciples, go to Peter and Andrew's house. Now, if you visit Capernaum today, you can see the synagogue, which is there. And about a stone's throw from the synagogue is what's called Peter's house. Now, there's no way to know for sure if that's where Peter lived, but the evidence seems pretty overwhelming. This house was a fairly large structure, uh, very fitting for a middle-class fisherman like Peter. And so the, the house itself fits, but more importantly, they found inside the house all kinds of Christian markings. On the walls, there were crosses and different Christian images. It's led many to assume and believe, I think rightfully so, that that house was used as a church in the days that followed Jesus' ministry. Doesn't it make sense that Peter, upon after Jesus ascended into heaven, would turn his house into a church gathering spot? And so because of that, many people assume it to be Peter's house. Nevertheless, Jesus and his disciples walk over there, wherever it was, and they discover there that lunch is not ready. You notice in verse 29 that they come out of the synagogue, they're going to the house of Simon and Andrew, along with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. So this is Peter's mother-in-law. Now, we read elsewhere in the New Testament that Peter was, in fact, married, but we never read anything about his wife. No mention of her. We do know that during this time in history, it was very, very common to have extended family come live in the home. So perhaps... Uh, his mother-in-law was a widow, and she was living there with Peter and his family and Andrew, the whole family under one roof. So they get back, and they find out that she is not well. I had to ask myself, why wasn't she at the synagogue that Sabbath? I don't have a great answer. I think perhaps, you know, that morning she woke up and felt a little bit not well. You know, maybe she said, hey, go on without me. I got a little bit of a headache. I'll be fine. Uh, come back. I'll have lunch ready. Well, she didn't have lunch ready because it got worse. And now she's in bed with a fever. And the Bible here says she was burning with a fever. Um, so obviously this is uh, serious, but at the same time, it's also a fever. It's, there's no evidence here that she was suffering from some major, major problem. Chances are she was just sick with the flu or whatever, and she likely would have got better with the proper care over time. But here she is, she's in bed, not feeling well. And I guess the question is, you know, if this wasn't a big deal, if she wasn't dying in bed, why does Jesus bother? Why, does, why the fuss about this person? I mean, after all, we just saw Jesus drive out a demon. And then we come back, and this is probably the least impressive miracle Jesus ever does. Anything about it. He heals a woman of a fever. Not too flashy, not too exciting. In fact, this may be the most forgettable of Jesus' miracles. Because it's just not that impressive. But that's right to my point. 
Jesus shows compassion and kindness in healing this sick woman. And I believe he heals her for no other reason than that he desires her to be well. He wants to serve her. He has compassion upon her. And I get that from the very way Mark describes this scene. He says in verse 31, so she's laying in bed, she's sick, they come and tell her. It says, he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. And the way Mark describes it, he takes her by the hand, he lifts her up. And, and the terms he uses there are very tender, very personal terms. So, so Jesus' healing of, of the mother-in-law, it's not like he just stands in the next room. You, you notice in, in the life of Jesus, he heals in a lot of different ways. He doesn't have one formula, does he? Sometimes he says, go home and you'll find your servant well. Sometimes he touches the person. Sometimes he puts mud in their eyes. There's not one way that Jesus heals. Jesus could have said, be well, and she got up. But instead, the way it's portrayed here, it's very personal. It's very touching in a way. And it shows his, his kindness and his compassion. Jesus is not just... Uh, kind of rolling his eyes, saying, oh, great, one more thing I have to do. Instead, he reaches down, he takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and immediately, the Bible says, the fever left her. She's well again. The very next scene we're about to look at, Jesus heals dozens of people. I think the story of Peter's mother-in-law here drives home the point that when Jesus heals, it's from his compassion and love. Jesus is not healing people like a grocery store clerk who's just, you know, all right, next one, next one, next one, you know, doesn't really care. He's just doing it mechanically. No, this story here very deliberately shows us that Christ is compassionate. The Bible says she rose up and immediately she served them. Now, for a long time, I used to think that was the point of the story. Jesus came home, there was nobody to serve them, so he heals her so that she can go serve them. I don't think that's the point at all. In fact, I think the reason he mentions that she gets up and serves is to show how thoroughly she's healed. If you have a fever and you're starting to get over it, it takes a while. You don't necessarily feel better immediately. And so Jesus' healing is instant. It's not like she... He touches her, and then 20 minutes later, she says, I'm starting to feel a little better. You know, the, the headache's lifting, and the fever seems to be receding. No, it's instant. She jumps up, and she says, not only do I not have a fever, I feel amazing. I feel great. In fact, let's, let's get lunch. It's instant. Her, she immediately feels better. It doesn't take hours. There's two things that strike me about this scene about this miracle that Jesus does. Number one is Jesus' compassion. I, I really get the sense that he serves her because he cares about her. Not because he has to, not because uh, he needs someone to get up and serve them. He heals because he's compassionate. Now, we're not going to be healing anybody, but we can learn from Jesus' compassionate heart to serve others. When we serve... We should do it out of compassion. You know, you've heard the expression before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's some truth to that. Would anyone say that you're a caring person? Uh, do we serve others with the heart of Christ? 
The second thing that strikes me here with this scene is the pedestrian nature of the miracle. It's so average. It's so unimpressive. Uh, he heals a woman with a fever. Not too amazing. But you know what? I found this about serving is oftentimes it's not, it's not always the big things that make the biggest impact. Now, uh, what was it? A couple of weeks ago when I was really sick, there were several folks who came over and brought stuff to us, asked us, hey, do you need anything? I really appreciated that because, you know, I was basically sick in bed. And it really made a difference to have somebody come by and serve us in that way. It really helped. And that was, that was a big thing, I would say. But you know what? I've also had people stop by the church and bring me a candy bar when I was feeling fine. And you know what? That meant something too. I mean, I didn't need somebody to bring me a candy bar at church. All right? But the fact that they did showed they cared. And it meant something. We don't have to serve in, in really big, colossal ways for our service to really make a difference in somebody's life. It shows compassion. It shows that you care. And that's what Jesus did. So we're going to look at him as our model for not growing weary and serving others. We need to serve out of a heart of compassion. Secondly, though, and the second lesson I want us to learn is that we should serve others even when it's not convenient. Serve others even when it's not convenient. This is where things get a little bit harder. We should not grow weary in serving others with compassion what about times when serving others is inconvenient? Now, in one sense, serving others is never convenient. Convenient is you sitting back while others bring you stuff. That's convenient. But as soon as it's me serving, well, that's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be convenient for me. Now, we might say to ourselves or to others, you know, I want to serve. I want to serve. But what we really mean is, I want to serve as long as it's convenient. <clears throat> Jesus understood the inconvenience of serving others. In fact, look at the next, next event that unfolds on this busy day. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. As we study this section, I want to point out first the time, the crowd, and the needs. So take a look at the time. It says in verse 32, at evening when the sun had set. So the afternoon had been spent at Peter and James, uh, Peter, yeah, Peter and Andrew's house, excuse me. And uh, they probably have been fellowshipping. And then evening comes. And so does the visitors. In Israel, days are reckoned from sundown to sundown. So Saturday starts at sundown on Friday. And then Sunday starts sundown on Saturday. And it's reckoned from sundown to sundown. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Well, on the Sabbath day, all activity ceases. It's a day of rest. You're not to be traveling around or carrying burdens or, or working. And so everybody pretty much goes home and stays home on Sabbath. And it's still like that today. In fact, it's really weird if you go to um, Jerusalem 
it's so interesting because every day of the week in Jerusalem, it's just bustling with activity and there's people and stuff going on everywhere. And then the Sabbath day, if you're in the Jewish quarter at least, everything closes. All the stores, all the restaurants, everything. And it's just like a wasteland. It's desolate. Nobody's around. It's weird. And then sundown on Sabbath, on Saturday, everybody starts to like come out of their holes. It's like they've been by themselves all day on, on Sabbath and now they're coming out and they're opening their stores and restaurants and ice cream parlors and, you know, everything kind of comes alive after sundown. Well, you see, everybody had been home on this particular Sabbath. And remember what I said, over lunch, everybody's been talking about, did you see what happened? That was amazing. Jesus' authority, he commanded that demon. If he can do that, there's no limit to what he can do. And they start thinking to themselves, well, what about that what about that pain I've been having in my foot? Well, you know, I bet Jesus could do something about that. You know, I've heard sometimes for people who are either doctors or nurses that if you let people know, like if somebody says, uh, finds out you're a nurse, suddenly it becomes, hey, you're a nurse. You know, I have this weird rash I keep getting on my side, or, you know, I've got this weird thing on my toe. And it's like, as soon as they find out you're a nurse, they want to just share all this, uh, you know, can you help me with that? Well, the same is true here with Jesus. As soon as people find out his power, it's like everybody suddenly has a problem they want him to address. So what happens? Verse 32. After the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. So the crowd forms outside his door. And they're coming from all over the place. You know, I think they've all been waiting for the sun to set. They've just kind of like been watching the horizon. Because as soon as that happens, we're going over to Jesus' house. And I want to stress here the timing of it. Because remember, it's happening at night. The sun is setting. Uh, Jesus has already had a long day. He's already driven out a demon and already healed a sick woman. And here comes everybody to the door. I mean, you can certainly imagine... That, well, it'd be understandable, right, if Jesus said, come back tomorrow. You know, I'm tired. Why exhaust himself further with other people's problems? This wasn't exactly a convenient time, was it? You know, I've noticed that people's needs sometimes come at really inconvenient times. You know, why is it that so many trips to the hospital happen in the middle of the night? It just must be the busiest time for the emergency room. But... Serving others is never going to be at the times when you want it. It's going to come at times when it's not exactly the best time. I mean, after all, when is the best time to deal with a friend who's in a crisis? When's the best time to deal with someone who is having a struggle? When's going to be the best time to help that person who needs a ride? They're never at convenient times. But serving others should be, and we shouldn't grow weary in serving others, even when it's inconvenient. And here comes the crowd. They're all flocking to Jesus' door. In fact, I imagine the whole city of Capernaum, you know, everybody's sort of coming out of their house at sundown, and they're all walking in the streets and kind of bumping into one another. Hey, how are you? You How was your Sabbath? Oh, great. Where are you going? Oh, Jesus' house. Oh, we're going there too. And everybody kind of amasses there, and there's this huge crowd. In fact, the Bible says in verse 32, excuse me, verse 33, the whole city gathered together at the door. So everybody in town is there at Jesus' house, Peter's house. 
They're all there to see Jesus. And what a sight it must have been. Here come people being carried on stretchers, and some have got crutches. Some are hobbling along. Others are led because they're blind. Some are brought, escorted by family members because they have an evil spirit. And just to look at this crowd, if Jesus swung open the door and saw this group of people there, the needs must have been just overwhelming. It must have felt like, my goodness, the entire town here, everybody with some need, some problem, something they want addressed by Christ. It would take hours to get to everybody. And it's already nighttime. But here goes Jesus. Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. By the way, when he uses the word many here, he doesn't mean that, that Jesus only selected a few and that there were many others who didn't get healed. In fact, if you look at the parallel passage in Luke 4.40, it says this, he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Every one of them. That must have taken hours. It's already late and this must have gone on well into the night. It says he's healing various sicknesses, casting out demons, doing all of this at a really inconvenient time. And the needs were overwhelming. And just because Jesus is God the Son doesn't mean that he didn't feel the pressure of the crowd and the many needs that were there. Now, in many churches, people are asked to serve in this way or that way, and they decline because, well, I'm too busy. I got too much going on. I don't have time. And those may be reasons, but sometimes they're excuses. Jesus was a busy person, but he always found time to, to serve, even when it wasn't exactly the best time. I mean, Jesus could have easily said, sorry, I'm too busy, got too much going on, make an appointment. He doesn't. He serves others. Now, again, I'm not suggesting you should overwhelm yourself by trying to do everything. Nobody can do that. However, I think sometimes our own desire for convenience, our own comfort, overshadows our willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others. And we're fortunate to live in a time when there's so many services available to us, round-the-clock services. But the question is, are we available to one another? Imagine you picked up the phone, called 911, and you got a busy signal. That would be the beginning of a bad day, wouldn't it? Or imagine you go to the hospital, the emergency room, and you find a sign that's hanging outside that says, closed. You know, we'd be appalled. You know, these, these are there for you or should be there for you all the time. But I guess the question is, are we there for each other? Because sometimes we're hanging the closed sign out, or sometimes we're giving a busy signal when we ought to be serving one another. You know, for, for Christians, serving is not a nine-to-five activity where you just clock out. Jesus didn't, didn't do it that way. And to follow the example of Christ means serving others, even when it's difficult, even when it's not convenient. There's one more scene, though, that unfolds here, different from the rest, and you'll see why in just a moment. And it teaches us this third lesson. We should serve others from the overflow of your walk with God. We ought to serve others from the overflow of your walk with God. Look at verse 35. 
Bible says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout Galilee, casting out demons. So we see this flurry of activity with Jesus. This very, very busy day in the synagogue, healing multitudes that night. And then we have this last scene. And lest we think that serving God and serving others is just ceaseless activity. It's always running. It's always doing from place to place. Serving the Lord also involves quiet moments of devotion and worship. You know, if we were to try and keep the schedule of Jesus here without having moments of rest and worship, we would wear ourselves out completely. When it comes to serving others, we ought to do it from the overflow of our walk with God. If we try to serve without being filled up ourselves, we find ourselves trying to run on empty. This, by the way, applies that we must know God. We must have a relationship with him. Jesus demonstrates the priority of time with God. The priority of time with God. Notice in verse 35, it says, Now in the morning, having risen long before daylight. So after spending this late night healing people, Jesus gets up early. Now, I may have told you this before, but I consider myself to be a day person. Not really a night owl, not really a morning person. I'm, I'm, my philosophy is when the sun is up, I'm up. Okay, So I can, I can stay up late. I can get up early if I need to, but I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a morning person or a night owl, either one. But this morning, Jesus is up early. And for good reason. I mean, who would blame Jesus if he slept in this morning? I mean, after all, it was a busy Sabbath. He was up late healing these people. You know, go ahead, hit the snooze button a couple times, Jesus. But he doesn't. He gets up early. In fact, before the sun does, and he creeps out of the house. You know, he probably is like stepping over Peter, snoring on the floor, you know, tr- walks out the door and closes it quietly behind him. And in the dark, stillness of Capernaum, everybody's sleeping, Jesus goes out to a solitary place, and he goes out to pray. Now, the New Testament uses a lot of different words for prayer. Some of them refer to intercession, praying for others. Some refer to supplication, making requests. The word that's used here is kind of a broad word, but it seems to imply that Jesus wasn't asking for anything or that he wasn't interceding for anyone. He was just praying to the Father. He was just communing with the Father. He wanted to be close to God. And I know this is a very convicting topic to bring up. But when did you last spend time with the Father in prayer? Have you had one of these early mornings recently? It doesn't have to be in the morning, but this time with the Lord. The great preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse once said, if Jesus in his great power and oneness with God could feel the urgent necessity of communion with the Father, how much more you and I need to go to the Father for the strength 
that fills our weakness and the knowledge that fills our ignorance. Prayer brings us into fellowship with God in a way that nothing else can provide. You know, here's the problem, and I see this problem in myself so often. We can easily run about serving the Lord and never stop to sort of refresh our soul in communion with God. And while Jesus is enjoying this solitary moment, there's always the pressure of demands. It's the priority of prayer and the pressure of demands. Notice he's out in the solitary place. He's praying, verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. You know, one of the reasons or perhaps excuses we have for neglecting fellowship with the Lord is all the demands. Uh, I don't have time to stand still. I'm too busy. I don't have time to spend with the Lord. There's too many demands upon me. And, and I honestly feel that way often, too frequently. I, I allow the pressure of demands to crowd out time with God. And as usual, in the midst of this moment, the pressures come knocking. You know, perhaps perhaps uh, Jesus, having left the house early in the morning, maybe, maybe some folks showed up early that day, knocking on the door, you know, wakes Peter up. He gets up, goes to the door and says, hey, listen, we're from the countryside around, but we heard about what happened last night, all the healing. And so, so here we are. Where's Jesus? Disciples look around. He's not here. So they immediately start a search. And this term here in verse 36, they searched for him, means that they, they really pursued him. And this was a, quite a, a search they put on. They go scatter and look for him. And finally, they discover where he is out in the solitary place. And what do they tell him? Everyone's looking for you. you know, the day has hardly dawned and more demands upon Jesus' time. More people are looking for him. And here come the demands upon his shoulders. Everyone's looking for you. In fact, that seems to be a bit of a rebuke, the way the disciples say it. Everyone's looking for you. It's almost like, Jesus, what are you doing out here? Come on. This is where the action is. This is where it's happening. Uh, they're wanting to capitalize on the popularity that Jesus is experiencing. Don't be out in this deserted place. There's people to be healed. There's, there's stuff to do. You know, these demands come knocking, and they do it for us, too where we feel that the pressure of, oh, i got to get this done, got to do that, got to get to here. And if we let it, it totally crowds out any time we might spend with God in, in quiet prayer, reflection, reading of the word. There's always that pressure. There's always demands on our time. And in fact, we're so used to being busy that I think we've become, in many ways, enslaved to the pressure of demands. If we know how to do anything, it's how to be busy, not how to be quiet. Jesus, however, shows us the prudence of selectivity. Look at verse 38. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Here's the truth. No one can meet every need. No one can be everywhere. No one can do it all. Therefore, at some level, we have to be selective. Now, by that, I don't mean we need to choose, like, oh, I'm only going to serve when it's convenient. I'm only going to serve certain people. 
But at some level, we do have to decide. There's some things we can't, we can't do everything, so what are we going to do and what are we not going to do? And Jesus tells his disciples, let's go to the next town. Jesus had priorities. You know, if Christ had wanted to, he could have stayed in Capernaum and just kept at it. People, there probably would have been a never-ending train of people coming needing this. You know, by the time he healed everybody in the city of Capernaum, the, the first guy probably was down sick again with something else, and back he comes. You know, he could have stayed there and just kept up the healing ministry. But, but Jesus has no interest in being sort of a, a traveling magic show for people's amusement. No, Jesus came for a purpose, to proclaim the good news. You see, Jesus had more in mind than just healing people. The healing, the miracles, pointed to the authenticity of his message. That's what mattered. The message is what will save people's souls, not just their bodies. The message of the gospel needed to be proclaimed. And so he says, let's, let's not stay here and keep this up. He says, let's get out there and keep preaching. I've got other towns to go to, other places to be. Healing's not the main priority. You know, we can't serve everyone in every way, so the question is, what are we going to focus on? Now, I'm not saying that we should downplay physical needs, that you know, only the spiritual needs matter. But when it comes to priorities, well, let me put it in the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? You can put in that, in the world, anything, right? What does it profit a man to gain physical health and lose the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a man to gain phys uh, prosperity and lose his own soul? You fill in the blank. The point is, when it comes to priorities, yes, physical needs matter, but spiritual needs matter more. Jesus demonstrates that here. Let me get back to the main idea, though, and that is, for Jesus, serving was an overflow of his relationship with God. And if we get that out of order, and if we get caught up in the pressure of demands, we're going to find ourselves running on empty. Have you ever tried to drive a car with no gas in it? It doesn't work very well. The only way you're going to keep the car moving is if you continually stop and fill it up from time to time. And we need the, the, the blessing of being able to stop and spend time with the Lord. If we just go on serving, 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 we're running on empty. Another illustration you could use would be a lake. You know, if the lake is always pouring water out in a river, eventually that lake's going to go dry unless there's some, some kind of inlet. There's got to be water coming in if there's going to be water always going out. And so it is when we serve. We need to spend time with the Lord. We need to be renewed in our walk with him. The reformer Martin Luther once said of his busy schedule, he said, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. It's the right attitude right there. I have so much to do that I better spend the first three hours praying. And that would probably help us all. Because we would find that we have a lot more to give when we're in that right relationship with God. Again, I find myself struggling with this immensely because I can just be busy all the time if I want. And it's hard to just stop and slow down and spend time with the Lord. 
And so the conclusion to my sermon, I, I admit, is a little bit truncated today. It's really not very well developed. Because as I was studying this passage and looking at this last night, I realized, you know what, I've been so busy preparing this sermon, I haven't really been applying it. So I went out last night and just spent a little time, not, not long, but a little time just with the Lord, praying, doing nothing but just spending time with him. And what a refresher. But what a, what a mark against me as well, because so often I neglect that. So when it comes to serving, let's not grow weary in it. If we neglect our walk with the Lord, we certainly will grow weary in serving others. It also means serving when it's inconvenient. So as we as a church, if we serve one another and we serve the Lord, let's not grow weary in that. And maybe you need to to renew a commitment to say, you know what, I'm going to spend a little time with God today. You don't have to get up early in the morning to do it, necessarily. It's a great time, by the way, to do it. But spend time with him. That's where you'll find the energy and the the stamina to keep serving, even when it's not convenient, and serve like Christ served, out of compassion.